This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. With me on the telephone today is Professor Harvey H. Jackson III, better known to his friends as Hardy from Jacksonville State University. We've had Hardy on the show before. He's an old friend, but he's written a new book called The Rise and Decline of the Redneck Riviera, an insider's history of the Florida-Alabama coast. So first of all, Hardy, welcome back to the journal. Good to be here. Let's talk about what you mean by the Redneck Riviera. There have been lots of claims for other places. Uh, the Myrtle Beach Chamber of Commerce doesn't even want to talk about it, although people have called that part of the coast the Redneck Riviera. But the true Redneck Riviera is the Alabama-Florida Gulf Coast. So let's describe that area and your relationship to it. Well, I, I, I picked out the area because it could, could extend in, in other directions, and that's true. It could also be over on the Atlantic coast. But I decided the best cohesive Redneck Riviera for me would be to start at the mouth of Mobile Bay, Gulf Shores, Alabama, and go toward the east to the mouth of St. Andrews Bay or Panama City, Florida. And that's, that's an area which has got beach communities that have evolved significantly over the last 25 to 40 years, have changed dramatically, and have gone through this evolution from what was once known as the Redneck Riviera to what is today some of the more upscale resorts in the in the nation. Yes, and you mentioned from Gulf Shores because on the western side of Mobile Bay, you've got Dolphin Island, but there really aren't any beaches on the mainland on the western side. Yeah, and Dolphin Island uh, is almost a private preserve. There's virtually no tourist development on Dolphin Island. And then when you get over into Mississippi, you know, Biloxi is as redneck as you can get, but it's a whole different culture there. It's, uh, it's a gambling boats uh, culture that you don't have uh, off to the east. But uh, off to the east, you have got resort communities that were once fishing communities that have evolved significantly through the tourist trade that was the post-World War II families coming down, spring break, uh, all of these things up until today that you have some really very upscale places like Seaside, Sandestin, uh, and so on like that. What's your personal relationship with the Riviera? Well, I grew up in South Alabama, and so Gulf Shores was within a couple of hours of us, and we went down to Gulf Shores a lot. Uh, also, in 1954, my grandmother bought property in a little development between Panama City and Destin. It's called Seagrove Beach. And uh, she bought some property there in 56, built a house. Uh, my father inherited it, and it is mine now. And this was the, the base from which I wrote the book. Um, I've been going down there since the mid-50s, mid-1950s, and it's just like a second home to me. Now, when you talk about a beach cottage, let's physically describe that. All right. The, the beach cottage in its original form, was it was concrete block, uh, cinder block, it had a, across the front was a living room, dining room combination. Uh, there was a small kitchen. There were two bedrooms and one bath. It was all one story. And so it was built flat on the ground? Flat on the ground, right on a slab, violating uh, virtually every environmental law that you have today. Okay. And it's still there? It is still there. It has been through one hurricane that tore the front part of the roof off, but so far we've weathered the other storms. Well, you've got some pictures of some other beach cottages I think that might be a little bit more similar to what the older South Carolina beach cottage was, and that was raised on stilts. I remember some from Gulf Shores. Right. And it usually included a front porch, that large, as you say, living room, dining room area, a couple of bedrooms, and a bath. Right. And quite often you'd sleep on the porch because most of them weren't air-conditioned. Oh, there wasn't any air-conditioning. No, no, no. You, You were a sissy if you used that. All right, let's set the time frame for the book. I start, the, although I go back before World War II a little bit, and I talk a little bit about the coast in World War II, the main focus of the book is after World War II, when you begin to have the people who lived through the Depression, lived through the war, finally are accepting the fact that a vacation can be part of, of the year, because prior to World War II, vacations were basically for rich folks. And they started coming down to the Gulf. They were from the lower south very much the same culture as was already on the Gulf. And they'd come down for a long weekend or at the most a week. They'd bring their food with them because there weren't many restaurants and you didn't eat at a restaurant every day anyway. 
and they'd stay in cottages. They 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 liked efficiencies, the ones with the little little stoves in it, and it was very much a rising white Southern middle class series of communities. And they didn't really change the beach that much. They were down there just to enjoy it. I can remember when we would go over to the Gulf once or twice a year. Really, it was to go to Fort Morgan. And if you visited one of those houses down near Gulf Shores, first of all, there was one paved road that went all the way to the end there at Fort Morgan. But there, the rest of the roads weren't paved. And if you had a house there, a lot of folks had gotten that old perforated steel planking from Army surplus. And instead of paving roads, they had two tracks of this steel, this metal going through the sand dunes so that they wouldn't get stuck getting to the house. Well, and woe be unto you if you got off those trails, too. Oh, you could abs- get stuck in a heartbeat. On the South Carolina coast, you know, we have maritime forest. It's not much in the way of tree cover no, in this uh, part of the In fact, the main forests that were down there, particularly on the Florida side, were longleaf pines, and they stripped the area back in the 30s mainly. And uh, there's very, very few remaining areas of longleaf pine. It used to be all over the place, but mm-hmm. the the loggers coming down, mostly out of Florida and, and southern Alabama, just stripped it there. And so you've got this blindingly white sugar sand. And unless you've seen the beaches on, on the Gulf, you don't realize how different they are from the Atlantic and the Pacific beaches. It, there's a wonderful story about a guy who was promoting Panama City Beach. He was trying to get Canadians to come down in the winter, and he went up on one of the talk shows and took a sugar bowl full of sand and switched it for the sugar bowl that the guy was using for his tea. And the guy didn't realize it, and he was ladling sand into his tea. It made the point. <laughs> it really, it is white sugar, and it, it is very, very fine. It gets into everything. <laughs> That's true. If you don't like sand, don't go to the Gulf Coast Beach. It uh, gets all over you. You mentioned that you carried everything with you. And you probably went down there just with, you know, just your single family. But, you know, there are stories of somebody may have a little place, but you ended up with two or three siblings and children and folks sleeping on the floor, on the beach, what have you. When it was my grandmother's cottage, the whole family came down. She had six children. And so uh, they would bring their families, and that the place was jammed. And we would fry bologna sandwiches. I can still smell fried bologna sandwiches and think I'm at the beach. Uh, and somebody would bring a ham, somebody would bring a turkey, because where we were, there were, the closest grocery store was 20 miles away. I'm just thinking you had all those people in the house. You probably got one shower, right? Uh, and yes. Well, you probably had an inside shower with hot water, an outside shower with it was all cold water. And, of course, they didn't tell the kids that there was hot water inside. I've had friends tell me that they had been down to our cottage and stayed down there for a while with my folks and never known there was hot water in the place. It'd make them all bathe outside. <laughs> and, and that was one of the rules is you also had a faucet by the front door. You had to wash your feet before you came in the house. That's right, because if not, you'd have sand in everything. So what you, what'd you do for fun back in those days, Hardy? Actually, until I got my driver's license, that part of the Redneck Riviera was pretty dull. From the time I became a teenager, when I hit 13, and I, I was one of the few teenagers down on the beach when I got my driver's license it was into Panama City go to the hangout go to the amusement park the miracle strip or go into Destin there were some places in there but Panama City Beach was the place to go it had a hangout it had jukebox and it was sort of a teenage mecca the baby boomers were hitting it and hitting it full blast and uh, spring break was still important but this was all through the summer and there was the constant tension between uh, the kids who lived in Panama City, which was across the bridge, or the kids who were in Panama City Beach who were tourists. It was the same tension in Gulf Shores. Uh, Gulf Shores had a hangout, and uh, and that was a great place to go. And so, like I say, once I got my driver's license, once we could drive down there without having to have our parents in tow, then things really got to be fun. It was it it got to be a wild place, and this was, and you know, and this was when the teenagers were down there. Later, when we got to you know old enough to go to the Florabama, old enough to go to the Pink Pony or the old Dutch Inn in Panama City. And, and you know, you could sneak by on a fake ID and look like you might be close enough to 21 to pass. Then things got really interesting, and you dis- you discovered what the Redneck Riviera was all about. Well, you you mentioned the Florabama, which I think should be on the National Register of Historic Places if it's, it should be. If it's, if it's not. But what it, it really became sort of a symbol of the Redneck Riviera. And so let's talk about the, the evolution of that spot, which is still there, right? 
it's still there. It, it's, it's upscaled a little bit, but the Floribama uh, really almost didn't get started. Uh, some people who didn't want it want the competition burned down the first manifestation of it in the in the late fifties. But it really got going when Joe Gilchrist and Pat McConnell took it over, and uh, by the by the mid sixties, it was uh, it was sitting right on the Alabama Florida line. But most of it is in Florida because Florida's got much more liberal liquor laws. You could serve liquor on Sunday over there, and so all of the bars were on, on the Florida side. And the other side, the restaurant part or the takeout part, uh, was, was over on Alabama. And that's where they got the term, the Florabama, and, and the motto, let's do it on the line. And it became a place where you could run into just about anybody. You could find a, a banker. You could find a biker. You could find a college kid. You could find uh, somebody who was in the member of the Chamber of Commerce. And, and it all sort of blended in there. And, and that first manifestation of it, it, you've heard of places where you clean your feet before you go in. It was sort of a place you cleaned your feet when you came out. Uh, it it uh, had bras hanging from the ceiling. One, one evening, uh, an unknown woman of great fame took off her bra and threw it to somebody, and somebody else threw it to someone else, and ultimately it got hung in the rafters. And uh, so they started putting lines across the, the, the bar so women could hang their bras on the lines. And, it you know, things like that just evolved. And then there's the mullet toss. The, the story of picking the mullet is, is, is a pretty good one. There was always this, uh, well, first of all, the person who originated is a guy named Jimmy Lewis, and he was one of the musicians at, at the Floribama. And uh, the story that is told for, for public consumption was always that they were trying to find something to do on the dullest weekend of the year. The dullest weekend is the last weekend in April. Spring break's over, the snowbirds are gone, the families haven't come in yet, and so what can we do to liven this up? And they're all sitting around, and somebody said, let's have a contest. And Jimmy Lewis had been out west where they had had cow patty pitching contests. And so supposedly he said, why don't we throw something? And then they decided on a mullet. But Jimmy Lewis told me that it really didn't happen quite that way. According to him, he said, I, I thought it up in a fit of narcosis. I got stoned one night, and it just came to me. I, I accept his explanation. But, uh, but they picked the mullet. The mullet is a, well, first of all, you understand a mullet's not a fish. It's a bird because it's got a gizzard. A court in the state of Florida said so. Some boys were caught fishing for mullet and uh, out of season, and they were hauled into court, and the lawyer argued that they weren't fishing because those are birds. And uh, the court said, yep, you're right. They've got a gizzard. They've got to be birds and dismiss the case. <laughs> but, uh, but the mullet was picked because it's, it's a bottom feeder. It's, uh, it operates in schools, in groups, just like folks at the Floribama. And it's supposed to have magical qualities. And it, it, one of the things it does, they jump together. Mm-hmm. They, they not only school together, but they jump together. And when they return to the water, they don't go back in like fish normally do. They just flop back in. And scientists have been trying to figure out why mullet do it that way. And they finally decide they do it just for the hell of it. <laughs> you know, there's no explanation. But they, uh, the, the way the contest works, you, uh, they've got a bucket full of, of mullet. They're all wet. They're alive, right? They, uh, well, no, they're dead. They're dead they, now. The Lord has called them to their reward. They're dead. You get the mullet out of the bucket. He's all slick. You cannot get sand on him. You cannot have gloves. And a mullet is normally a very oily fish anyway. Very oily fish. And so you've got something slick. There's a, there's a trick to, to how you hold it. Uh, it, it. It involves bending the mullet and breaking the backbone. But uh, you, you get it, and it's a, once it's bent over, it's about the size of a softball. Uh, you stand in a 10-foot circle, and the circle is on the Florida side, and you throw it down this this alleyway of, of chairs on either side and throw it into Alabama and therefore it is the interstate mullet toss and the mullet girls are out there and they measure the distance but you've got to go get your own mullet they're not going to catch it for you and then they later they feed the mullet to the seagulls and how are the mullet girls clad at which point in the contest it, they tend to be clad less and less as the contest goes on. They usually start off with cut-off shorts and, and tank tops. By the end, it's bikini tops and uh, occasionally thongs. 
Okay, that that's obviously getting into the 21st century. That's obviously Girls in the yeah. 60s weren't wearing thongs. But, no, but by the way, the last records uh, information I got on beer sales was that the last one where they calculated it, that one weekend they sold over 16,000 cases of beer. At the Floribama. At the Floribama. It's no longer the dullest weekend in the year. It's <laughs> incredible. You should go. <laughs> I we need to get up a historian's, a historian's expedition to the mullet toss. Perhaps, but I, I haven't been to the Floribama since my, my high school years. Uh, well, it's, in a, it, I'll, I'll tell you this. It has changed. It was wrecked by Ivan. They put it back together largely like if, if you had a bunch of Boy Scouts who were fairly handy with hammers. And they ran into some problems of getting permits because of the way they had tents up there. And this, and so a new partner came in, and he had money, and he also had more upscale taste. So it's much nicer now. But I figure maybe two or three bar fights, and it's going to be pretty much like it used to be. And there are still lines for bras. Yes. They, they took down the old ones. They were getting pretty ratty anyway. But new ones have gone up. So um, you know, nothing changes a whole lot. Well, I, th- I think it was interesting when they were trying to rebuild. There were some some snooty folks who who wanted to insist upon all sorts of uh, architectural restrictions, and the Floribama was popular enough to get exemptions from a lot of a lot of rules when it rebuilt. It did. It took them a while, and and Joe was not real happy about it. But yeah, the Floribama has a has a clientele on both in both states that will defend it to the bitter end. In, in fact, uh, the Alabama State Archives is putting together a 20th century uh, exhibit, and they've contacted the Floribama asking for at least a mullet toss T-shirt to put in the exhibit. Okay. Uh, by, by the way, Joe was a history major, too. Hardy, we're talking about how the Floribama changed and didn't really change, but what about the rest of the beach? What about Seagrove? What about Gulf Shores? You've, uh, got, you've got two or three events that are really going to make a difference. First of all, as far as Gulf Shores is concerned, when Hurricane Frederick came in in 79, it, it leveled Gulf Shores, and people were wondering whether or not they could afford to rebuild. Well, this was at a time when there was money to loan. There were baby boomers who the first wave of baby boomers were getting to the point where they wanted to buy something, and you have this sort of perfect storm of economic activity. And developers came in, and they'd buy up lots, put the lots together, and up go the condominiums. And uh, it took a little while to convince uh, Alabama folks that you can buy a condominium, a, a unit in a building, and you own from the inside of the wall to the inside of the wall. But they caught on, and uh, and they became, you know, the thing for a while down there. And, you know, the first wave of condominium building starts then. A few years earlier, Hurricane Eloise had hit Panama City, this was in 76, and uh, had hit Panama City Beach, and it had torn that up. And so while they were rebuilding along much the same way, Destin began advertising in newspapers around the South that Gulf Shores had been uh, torn up, that uh, Panama City Beach had been torn up, but Destin wasn't hit, so come to Destin for a vacation. And that's when the money started rolling into Destin. So you've got this stretch in the 70s where two storms are going to change the nature of how people are going to be building down on the coast. Those two things started the booms that were turned Gulf Shores and Orange Beach into a wall of condominiums, turned Panama City Beach, Thomas Drive into much the same thing, and turned Destin into uh, from a little fishing village into one of the leading vacation destinations in the South. Well, you, you, you mentioned the storms which physically changed the landscape, but... In the late 60s, you also had the federal government come up with their wonderful, basically, hurricane insurance. So you, instead of building the, the $10,000 house that you don't mind losing, you can now build a $200,000 house, and you can get Uncle Sam to pay for you to rebuild it. That's right. And, uh, and that, plus some very liberal lending policies in the 70s and 80s. Uh, well, excuse me, go ahead. I'm sorry. Things got so hot in the 80s, you were talking about some condos at, at Gulf Shores flipping over, and within 18 months, something like 100, 150% increase in price? The price is, boom, the biggest, that, that happened in the 80s. It happened again from about 1998 up until the crash in 2008. And during that time, that was when the flipping really became popular. In Gulf Shores, the Mobile Press Register documented one condominium unit 
that changed hands five times before anybody got a key. They would get a pre-construction loan. They would buy the condominium. They'd turn right around and sell it, making about ten or fifteen dollars to $20,000 on sale. That person would sell it again. That person would sell it again until finally somebody nailed a nail and had a key. It was hot. I mean, you, you cannot believe what you can. But it, you, it, it's hard to imagine now how much activity was going on down there. They were saying that the, that the bird of Florida shouldn't be the uh, whatever it is. It should be the uh, construction crane. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of this construction, of course, is going to change the demographic of the people who are coming. It is. And the people who used to come down and redneck it up are not coming. You know, They're not going to come down and pay $250,000 for a condo or half a million dollars for a house in a gated community and want to go listen to the trashy white band. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a different clientele. And the place, if you really want to see it, the place that will uh, be apparent is a stretch of road along the southern part of Walton County in Florida. It's Highway 30A. And 30A even has its own magazine now. Uh, I just finished an article on it and called Thir- Highway 30A, the road where the Redneck Riviera died. And right in the middle of this, this road is Seaside. Seaside is this new urbanist community that it appears in all sorts of architectural magazines. No condominiums. It's kind of, it's kind of an, a horizontal condominium. It builds inland, but it's got um, concerts. It's got fine restaurants. It's got upscale shopping. It's got brick streets and tin-roofed houses, painted colors that have never been seen in nature. Uh, it's, uh, it's Disney World, but it's without the rides. And, and it's, it's a money maker. And it's it is a planned community, and it is. It is planned down to the nth degree. In fact, if you saw the movie The Truman Show, it was filmed in Seaside, uh, and Seaside was in a way one of the stars of, of the movie. But uh, our little house is is right next to Seaside. I, I sat on our deck and watched Seaside rise up out of the Palmetto. Uh, we called it Pastel Hell. But it's, it's really, it works. Uh, you know, we can pick on it all we want to, but it really, really works. And, you know, complain about the traffic, it certainly brought that in. But one of the things it did, South Walton County has only two high-rise condominiums along Highway 38. Both of them were built in the 80s, and after they went up, the people along that highway protested to the inland political interest, and they set a height limit of 50 feet, and it's held. So there's none of that wall of condominium there. Can't say the same thing for the Alabama side. No, the Alabama side, has, if, if there are height limits, there are ways to get around it. Which, by the way, if you're ever along the coast a lot and you've been there, you know that there's always a way to fudge a little bit. It's one of these to the, to the developer all. But uh, it's, you know, it's an interesting place. Over to the uh, east of Destin, uh, one developer got a highway moved for him. It's called Odom's Curve. So his development could be on the south side of the highway rather than the north side. So his folks wouldn't have to cross the highway to get to the beach. Precisely. That's right. Well, we, we Then know, he built a wall around it. Well, we know about that in South Carolina. I-95 <laughs> had an interchange changed so that folks could get off at south of the border. Well, you know, this is one of the things that uh, has been noted about the book. A reviewer in the Miami Herald said that one of the things about what I was describing up here was that it could be described virtually anywhere along the Atlantic coast. Development has come in and has altered what was once this, this middle-class world of less than sophisticated development. And this is part of the evolution of the coast. Hardy, you mentioned that Walton County had height restrictions. They made sure that folks didn't get blocked out. You can go to certain areas of South Carolina, for example, Garden City Beach, and you may or may not have been there, but it's divided between Georgetown and Horry County. Georgetown County has fairly strict height ordinances, and you can actually see where the county line is, by where you can't see the ocean. You can, you can tell that in a couple of places in Walton County where you're driving along and all of a sudden up goes a condominium. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, some counties have been able to do this. Uh, other counties have just let the, the, the developers go wild. Obviously, you keep going back. But what about the folks that were your peers in the 50s and 60s? Where do they go now? Well, <laughs> the ones that can afford it. And, and many of them have bought those condominiums. I mean, many of the middle-class folks that went down there 
now are in the upper end of the middle class uh, bracket, and, and they've done rather well. There are places where this the good old boy and girl can go. Gulf Shores still has a big state park, and it's a place that, that is available to people to come down. They can camp. They can bring a trailer. There also, if you go inland a ways, there's some less expensive motels, and then you can just come back, drive down to the beach and park, and go to the resurrected hangout and things like that. But they do come. And uh, this was one of the things that was, was so uh, interesting when the BP bill occurred. One of the things that BP did was to give money, not happily, but they gave money to uh, restore tourism. And so some of the local folks said, let's have concerts. And that was fine as long as you were having uh, the easy listening concerts and all like that. But one of the bands that they brought in was Leonard Skinner. And Leonard Skinner, of course, is uh, Free Bird is the Redneck National Anthem. And some local folks got real upset and said that, you know, this is terrible. And every toothless redneck from around north of us is going to come down here and they're going to bring their own natural light and they're going to bring their own food. Nobody's going to buy anything. But at those concerts, if you looked at the people who were there, they, they weren't a bunch of toothless rednecks. They looked an awful lot like people who had always come to the beach. And, and you know, in a way, they are. They're the sons and daughters or grandchildren of the people who made the Redneck Riviera what it was at first. And so there's a continuity, but there's also an awful lot of people who come down from places like uh, Cincinnati. A lot of people come from over in Texas. Dallas sends a lot of people down there. Uh, they'll drive right by Louisiana because, like you said, Louisiana didn't have much, much of a beach. Mississippi doesn't have much of a beach. But once you get to get past Mobile, uh, there's beach for miles. And these people are fluent enough to, uh, to get down there. They're fluent enough to rent a condo for a week. You mentioned the BP oil spill, and you're right there on the beach, right? Yes. What was your beach like? Our beach was lucky. We were about 50 miles beyond where the worst was. We got some chips. We got a few oil patches. But the closer you got to the well, when you got on over to Destin, particularly when you got over to Pensacola Beach, it was bad. And I had a good friend... He was a captain of one of the decontamination vessels, and I had another one who was a captain of one of what they call vessels of opportunity that went out looking for where the patches for oil were. And there was some really bad stuff out there. Uh, and the danger today, to me, and to, to my way of thinking, is that they sprayed a lot of those oil patches with a dispersant that broke up the oil, and that stuff settled on the bottom. And uh, a good hurricane can stir it back up again. Well, I know that you know they had booms in Mobile Bay. They had were actually talking about dropping granite, filling in one end of Dolphin Island to block the. Spout. And 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 then of course you've you've got that the, the the natural conflict between the folks who live and play down there. And in one case, the boom that was across Pedito Pass got broken because some good old boys and girls decided to take their wave runners and jump it, <laughs> <laughs> and didn't make it. So they had to go back in and repair that. Hardy, I need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Hardy Jackson of Jacksonville State University in Alabama, the author of a new book, The Rise and Decline of the Redneck Riviera. Well, let's talk about an interesting enclave, Ono Island. Ono Island. <laughs> in, in just the other day, I was talking with some folks about this because uh, the Floribama, among other things, is now holding Sunday church service. Is it, yes, non -denom is it interdenominational or? You it's know? interdenominational and uh, interfaith, and you know, it, there it is. And uh, and it's had a large crowd coming out there. It's a Methodist church is is uh, uh, running it. I'm always glad that my co-religionists are out there, you know, going where the sinners are. But you know, you think about it for a minute now. There, it's always been a tradition down at the coast that that people sow their wild oats on Saturday night and go to church Sunday, pray for a crop failure. Uh, you know, now now they can go pray for the crop failure in the same place where they sowed the oats. There's, there's a, you know, it's efficiency, <laughs> nothing else. But Ono, uh, Ono used to be just a place where people grazed goats. But back in the late 60s, the men who owned it sold it to a group of developers. And what they did was to create, the first thing they created was really a kind of a, a low-scale little getaway. And until they built the bridge, people just went there by boat. Many of the houses are not the big mini-mansions, but starting in the late 70s, 
a lot of money went in there. It, it's a gated community, and the gate is on a bridge. And uh, and you don't get out on Ono unless you are part of the approved, you know, group. Uh, you've got to be a property owner, uh, you know, or a guest of a property owner, or whatever. Kenny Stabley, you know, the quarterback used to have a house out there. Well, I, I was going to say, say there's a person that sort of epitomized the Redneck Riviera, and then the next thing you know, he is in this swank gated community. That's true, and 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 then the next thing you know, he's in a bitter divorce, and and I'm not sure who got the house. But yeah, uh, Stabler, Stabler, and a number of others like Richard Todd, who was another uh, uh, Alabama quarterback, uh, and a lot of those guys went down there, and that was that was their playground. They were from Mobile, and Todd was from Mobile, Stabler was from Foley, and uh, and that was where they went to play. Uh, Stabler bought one of the first post-Frederick condominiums had the, the number of the unit was the number of his jersey. Where do you see this stretch going? You think, I mean, it's obviously still divert. You've got Gulf Shores, which hadn't changed that much. You're, you're right there in, in Seagrove next to this very posh, planned community. Are you all the only house like that in the area? No, and, and Seagrove's got a lot of houses like that. Also, on the other side of, of uh, Seaside is Grayton Beach, which is even older and has more of that uh, early forest charm to it. It's, it's pretty diverse, but what, what it seems to me is that, uh, you know, now property, property values are not going to fall much, but after the 2008 crash, where property values have been going up precipitously for a while, they stabilized and in some cases came down. A lot of foreclosures and a lot of uh, people who normally would not have bought at the beach have been buying down there. More importantly, I think, is the fact that many people who had lost money in the condominium market or who couldn't get loans to build a condominium now could get loans to build motels and hotels. And so what's happening is that you're having more rental property at better prices, and that's attracting people a lot like the ones who used to come to the Gulf. Now, ad- admittedly, uh, a middle-class person today makes a lot more money than a middle-class person made in 1947. But in terms of the relative buying power, it's it's pretty much the same. And now they can come down and they can go to Orange Beach or Gulf Shores or Destin or somewhere, and they can rent at a reasonable price uh, a hotel room if it's just them or rent a condominium with three bedrooms and so they can bring maybe three families, pool it in together. So it's becoming, I'm, I'm not going to suggest that it's going to become a blue-collar pl- playground again, but it is certainly beginning to, to lose some of that, that sophistication, except in places that, have, that are really established, like Rosemary Beach, Alice Beach. These are high-profile, upscale communities, planned communities, seaside and over uh, in parts of Orange Beach and Gulf Shores, you've got the, the same type of, of uh, you know, Ono Island. But there are enclaves beginning to pop up where people of more modest means are able to, to come down and have a good time. How is the general reaction of the community to that? As long as it makes money, the community is happy. That is the bottom line for the permanent residents down there. Uh, I went out deep sea fishing uh, a couple of years ago with uh, Captain and his, his mate that we go out with all the time out of Destin, sitting right in Destin Harbor in one of the most beautiful locations in, in the world is this gigantic condominium luxury hotel called the Emerald Grand. And I mean, it is this burgundy and tan. I, it's big, all right? And we were sailing in after a day of fishing, and I looked over at the at the mate, and I said, "What do you think of that?" And his reaction was, "More people to fish." Okay. And what were you fishing for? We usually go out and uh, go for snapper. And and by the way, despite the fact that they are talking about you know fish kills and all, the snapper stock are up there high. There there are plenty of fish out there. We go for snapper. Uh, we go for grouper. We go out for the bottom fish. And then we will fish later on. Go if we go out far enough, we'll go out for tuna. And but just about anything that will hook, we'll we'll bring it in. We don't often fish for trophy fish. We fish for the pot. Okay, big difference. Yeah. Yes. Earlier you talked about people in the in- inland communities who would be across the highway from the beach. Is beach access restricted anywhere? This is getting to be a problem, 
and uh, Florida has had some uh, court cases about this. Yes, beach access is restricted in some places. Some communities, some counties have beach access when the beach is clearly defined as public. Uh, most of Walton County's beach is public, but not all. In some cases, deeds have the person owning beachfront property down to the mean high tide line. Mm-hmm. And on the Gulf Coast, since there's not much, t- uh, much change in the tide, that's virtually the water's edge. But the big controversy was when the storms of uh, 2004-2005, Ivan and Dennis, tore up the beach. The state of Florida was going to come in and rebuild the beach, what they call renourishing. But the state of Florida said, if we rebuild your beach, it's a public beach because it's being rebuilt with public money. Some people sued, saying we don't want uh, you to do this, and we don't want our beach to become public. The problem is that you can't renourish just one or two places. You have to renourish a whole beach. And if somebody opts out, that endangers the other beaches. And there's also the insurance question. And so it eventually reached the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that the state of Florida can, for the protection of the beaches, renourish the beaches. And uh, if the beaches are renourished, they're public beaches. But it's still open whether or not if a beach is not renourished, if someone can declare that as their beach and keep people off of it. Well, most South Carolina beaches are open. The issue is not beach access. It is parking, which has gotten to be... In some communities like Mount Pleasant near Charleston, it's gotten to be a real nightmare. Uh, it's a nightmare. Also, it's a, even if there's a park, state park that has parking places, they're not enough. And and there's this question of you you buy up extremely expensive land just to asphalt it over, and then you've got the question of if you asphalt it over, are you destroy, are you destroying the habitats of endangered beach mice or nesting birds or something like that? And, and it's an ongoing controversy. Well, speaking of beach mice, that's the Gulf Shore story, right? But yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about unintended consequences. Well, all right. Back about uh, seven, eight years ago, Orange Beach needed a boat ramp. It already had one. It was, it, you mentioned parking. People were parking in the highway. Uh, it was just too jammed up, so they wanted to put in another public boat ramp. They had a piece of property on Old River right across from Ono Island. Perfect place for it, except the people on Ono Island and the people in an upscale condominium right close by did not want the rednecks in their boats whizzing in and out of the pass there, making all the noise and everything else. Because the, the boat ramp will be a public boat ramp, so it becomes the common man's marina. So what they decided to do was to bring in an environmentalist who would say that they could not build a boat ramp there because it would endanger the beach mice. And the environmentalist showed up and said, it won't endanger the beach mice. And they said, why? He said, because there are no beach mice. Well, why were there no beach mice? Because they had been eaten by feral cats. Well, the feral cats had gotten there because the developer earlier had been afraid that he was not going to be able to develop his property because of beach mice. So he went to the local animal shelter, adopted five or six cats, turned them loose, got rid of the beach mice problem, and now there's the cat problem. So the people over in Ono Island said, we will trap the cats humanely, and then we will bring in beach mice in order to you know, have beach mice on the property so they won't build the ramp. And it eventually got to the point where it's going to court, and it's in court still. Um, <laughs> you hang around there, there, down there long enough, something strange is going to happen. Well, along this stretch, since we're both historians, we need to to mention that there are some very significant historic sites. At the mouth of Mobe Bay, you've got Fort Morgan, Fort Gaines. Over at Pensacola, you've got several historic... Fort Pickens. Fort Pickens, named after Andrew Pickens of South Carolina. Very close to Fort Pickens was one of the largest African-American beaches that were along the coast. This was one of the things in getting into this that I was going to be looking for was, you know, access of African-Americans to the beach. And as it turns out, there was a very active African-American beach near Panama City Beach. The one at Pensacola Beach, Johnson Beach, was it had casino, it, and, and it was really a, a very thriving area. And uh, as it turns out, Gulf Shores has the state park, and the state park uh, apparently 
it was segregated in the casino. Blacks were not allowed in the in the casino in the 50s and early 60s. But the beach itself is so big that there were areas along there where African Americans went and nobody bothered them. When you say a casino on the Gulf Coast, you're not talking about a gambling joint. You're really talking. No, no, and that that's that's true. It was a big dance hall, and yeah. it would usually serve food and it would serve beverages. But uh, if it, depending on where it was, the one in uh, Panama City served alcoholic beverages. The one in uh, State Park in Alabama did not. Although at one time they did make a move to to have alcoholic beverages, but it ran into problem with so many teenagers down there. You mentioned that like Johnson Beach near Pensacola, is it still predominantly African-American? No, it's a state park now, and it's used pretty much by everybody. Okay, because Atlantic Beach here in South Carolina, which was the black beach along the Grand Strand, is still predominantly an African-American community. Today, most African-Americans who go to the beach go where everybody else goes. Well, It's I mean, still pretty much a white area. Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, let's face it, a, a black face along the beach is a rarity. Best I can tell, not since the, oh, late 70s, I guess, early 80s, there has not been any real problem with integrated beaches. Well, Atlantic Beach, it's a very self-contained, very proud community, but whether you go to to Litchfield Beach or Myrtle Beach or Folly Island, Folly Beach, you're going to find a rainbow of color. But I was just thinking that uh, here, this, this one community, it used to call itself the Black Pearl of the Grand Strand they fought off development to keep it pretty much the way it always was. It didn't happen that way down uh, Johnson Beach. Uh, Johnson Beach, like I say, part of it became a state park, but some of the uh, African-Americans who owned the beach, there was a a black dentist in Pensacola who owned a uh, stretch of the beach and organized what was known as the Sunset Riding Club, and apparently they rode horses out there and all. But uh, his family sold his part of the beach to a developer. Selling off, isn't that how things changed. You mentioned after Frederick, people at Gulf Shores Precisely. sold. Yep. Florida, all of Florida is this way, but the, the Florida-Alabama coast is very much a, a land of dreams. People are constantly reinventing what it is. And that's the reason why I think in many ways you can find the upscale still fairly close to, to what you would call the less than sophisticated. You can find it there if you hunt hard enough. Well, it's interesting, folks that I grew up with who would not think of having a house on the Gulf, if anything, they would have a house over the bay, on the western shore of Mobile Bay. All of that's changed now. Anything on the bay is fine. But a lot of those folks I know have houses at at Ono or Destin. And so, as you say, the whole perception of what's there has changed considerably. Yeah, about the only time that you have people who really go down to the to the coast to, to raise hell is spring break. <laughs> you know, I mean, that this this is a party crowd. But the rest of the time, people may go down, they may go out to a club one night, but for the most part, they're going to go down, they're going to go to the beach, they're going to go out and eat, they're going to shop somewhere. It's still got that laid-back character to it, but it doesn't have that, that sort of outlaw uh, touch that it used to have. This whole spring break phenomenon really started in the probably the late 50s, didn't it? The late 50s. The first time I came across anything regarding spring break for, for this area, because the Gulf Coast is cold in March and April. It's, you know People don't usually go to the coast to lay out in the sun during that time unless home is Canada and you know how much cold it is up there. But there was a little mention in the Mobile Press Register in, uh, in 1960 that the coast was bracing for the influx of hundreds of Alabama high school students. That's the first mention I'd found of it. Uh, and so, like you say, late 50s, early 60s. Now, in, in 1960, Hollywood put out the movie Where the Boys Are. Yes. And it was, of course, in Fort Lauderdale, but it, it became cool to go to the beach. And uh, more and more people went down. But spring break in, in the 50s and 60s was only two days. You, you know, you got uh, Thursday and Friday off. And so if you were as far away as Birmingham, then you, you, you seriously considered whether you wanted to spend half a day driving to be on a cold beach for two days and spend half a day going back. Most of the time we did, but you know. Well, but you've got to remember, uh, and folks might find this difficult to believe, but Alabama had very strict drinking laws. Very strict, yep. 20, 21, in South Carolina, the drinking age for beer and wine was 18. In Alabama, it was, 20, it was 21. 
so that spring break was a time when somebody's older brother bought a case of beer and you went to the house and you partied. You did, and uh, and I, I was talking to uh, the police chief of Panama City Beach. During, he was police chief during the 60s, and he was talking about how basically if you had one person in the group who could buy the beer, that, that's, you know, you invited someone, even if he was nerdy. You, if, he had a, if he was 21, you brought him down. Uh, but he said, you know, when you really think about it, though, uh, those kids could find beer in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Yeah, but spring break really got to be a phenomenon. Late seventies again. This this is kind of a turning point uh, in the in the tippling uh, mid to late seventies. You know, people talk about how wild the sixties were. The seventies was really the wild time down there. The influence of the Vietnam War had brought the drinking age down to eighteen because you know if you can fight and die for your country, you ought to be able to buy beer. And it's going to stay eighteen until uh, during the Reagan administration when they basically said if you want federal highway funds, then you've got to raise the drinking age to 21. You know, it, it didn't curtail anything. The pattern had already been set. But uh, 70s and early 80s was when you began to see Destin and Panama City Beach, particularly Panama City Beach, become the uh, the playground for the wet t-shirt contest and all of those strange uh, rituals. Well, obviously we have spring break on the beaches here in South Carolina, but we also have a big thing, particularly for the high school kids. It's called First Week. It's the first week after graduation when some brave or crazy parent will run a house on the coast. Yep. Do you do you have that first week experience? You, you have it, but it's not nearly what, what y'all have over there. It has it's not really has not caught on as that I've seen. Uh, spring break is still the big ritual and that's when they, they come down. I have a son who's a sophomore at Auburn and spring break last year was, was uh, his first spring break down in a college setting and uh, his mother I think was praying on her knees every night for his, you know, well, if not salvation, at least safety. Did y'all give him the keys to the house? Uh, only when hell freezes over. <laughs> <laughs> and he knows that, too. Uh, in fact, the truth of the matter was, our spring break coordinated with that, so I went down and stayed at the house, and they went destined. And, oh. you know, I, I was there to make bail if necessary, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Hardy, how about just summing up your 50 or 60 years experience with the Redneck Riviera and uh, where you think it's going to go in the 21st century? Well, in the time that I've watched it, it's changed more than anything else because there are more people there. The coast, any coast is popular. Any water is popular. And people want to get close to it. And people who come down are not the type that want to come down and enjoy something that's so exotic that it's inconvenient. Uh, what they want to do is come down and enjoy something that's exotic, but at the same time they've got the amenities that they had back at home and maybe a few extra ones. They, they still want to do what people have always wanted to do down there, and that's to do stuff that they couldn't do or maybe wouldn't do at home and do it in a more beautiful setting. I don't see that changing. I think that that's going to be the lure that the coast is always going to have. It's going to be a place where you can sort of make yourself what you want to be that you may not be able to be in Grove Hill or Monroeville or Montgomery or, you know, wherever. You know, and so the future of it, I think, is going to be more and more of, of the same type of people coming down, looking for that, that extra something to uh, add a little bit of fun to their uh, lives for the time that they're down there. I think what you're going to see in the next few years is there's going to be kind of a scaling back of, of economic development. Uh, the booms of the early 20, 21st century uh, have, have not fizzled out, but they've calmed down a lot. The people that I've seen down there are a, a much less hyper people. They're not dressing up every night to go to a fancy place to eat or something like that. And there's an awful lot of family orientation still. One of the things, demographically, one of the things that happened to the South in the late part of the 20th century was we had sort of a mini baby boom uh, and a kind of a bubble in which there were a lot of kids born. And these families are coming down now. Uh, they are more affluent. They drive bigger cars. They use more gas. And they rent bigger places or, in some cases, buy bigger places. So the affluence is going to go on. Uh, the good old boys and girls who would come down in a pickup truck, uh, they can still find a place, but they have to look a lot harder. But uh, the coast is still going to be a place where people can relax, people can do things they don't do back home, and uh, and people can leave it behind for somebody else to clean up. Except 
like you, you own it and you got it. And <laughs> there you go. And, and, and I have to be the one to help clean up. And 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 I hope that uh, if you deed it to your boy at some point, that there's a covenant where he can't sell it either. Well, I tell you what, I've got three kids, and I'm. It'll go to all three of them, and I, and they have to have un, a, a unanimous vote in order to sell it. I don't think that that will happen. Uh, this is this has become so much a part of the family and family lore. It, uh, I hope not either. Uh, I'll come back and haunt them if they do. Hardy, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? No, just come on down to the coast. Bring money. Okay. <laughs> that's that's, that's, that's the, the typical mantra. Florida call. Okay. Well, Hardy Jackson, author of The Rise and Decline of the Redneck Riviera, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Weren't you excited to learn about beach mice, mullet tosses, and the evolution of a beach community from small fishing villages and family vacation homes to high-rise condos and intensive development? The story of the development of the Gulf Coast of Alabama and Florida have many parallels to what has happened to large sections of the South Carolina coast. As our guest pointed out, folks want to be near the water. And the changes, whether in housing styles, from small fishing shacks to mega mansions, it's a story that many of us in South Carolina have faced. But as his friend, the deep sea fishing captain said, all those condos bring in more folks to fish, and that means money for the community. One perspective, but one that I think is shared by a lot of folks. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.